Would you like headphones on for the chat? It's up to you. What are you all having? You've all got headphones on. Go on. Yeah? Oh, you won't have headphones on. Oh, could what? They just look like the most like, professional well, they are, ones. They are, they are, they are nice you just ones. didn't want to pick up the shit ones, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm not wearing those headphones. I'm in, I'm in. I'm in a mess, I can't help it. I just go round and round. I'm paranoid, I'm selfish. Push me, I climb up, I'm shellfish. You're listening to Q Presents The Making Of. I'm Kate Tempest. I woke up at like half six this morning. Is that Maybe is that even regular? earlier than that. Like, well, no, it's because there's loads of shit I've got to do. So when I don't have anything to do, then I can happily like stay in bed for ages. But when you've got loads of stuff to do, you've got to get up. Do you get stressed about doing interviews? Like if you've got a day like this where it's all booked in? No, it's, 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 it's great. It's beautiful. I mean, it's like... You have to remind yourself sometimes that it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, mean? I wake up and I was like, I've got to do that Kate Tempest podcast. Oh, for I've got to do it. <laughs> Staying in bed. <laughs> Are we ready to officially begin? I'm going to read out a short thing first. Great. Hello, listener, and welcome to this week's instalment of Q Presents The Making Of, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of the great music makers of our time. My name is Niall Doherty, and our guest this week certainly matches that description. We're joined by Kate Tempest, one of the most vital British artists working today. Kate grew up in South London and she's an award-winning poet, rapper, playwright, novelist and more. Whichever medium she turns her attention to, Kate seems to be able to master it. She recently released her third album, The Book of Traps and Lessons, and she joins us in our Camden studio. Hello, Kate. How are you? Hello. I'm, I'm well. Uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners on well, thanks, your podcast. Thanks for fitting us in. Have you, do you feel like you've been doing a lot of talking about this record? I mean, it's been out a couple of months now. How does it feel when the dust has settled and you can look at, like, look at that experience? Uh, well, the experience of the album coming out? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's mad because you don't really have time to, to take stock of any of it because it comes out. It's really hectic for the couple of months before it comes out and then it comes out and you're touring. And it's your, t it's your chance to talk about it and try and kind of push it out as far as you can. So I'm still in that moment, really, with it, where it's like, you're just, you're just in it. You're kind of riding it. I, f I, feel really, I feel really close to the record at the minute because I'm performing it every night when, I'm, when we're on tour. Well, we're doing festivals over the summer. And it's, yeah, it's just... Um, I have this sense of being at the beginning of something because I remember at this time when the last album came out, I've got this hindsight where I know how much actually happened after that initial couple of months when the album came out. Then I've got this kind of montage of the next 18 months that happened yeah, and everything yeah. that went on with that album and the touring. And so I, I, yeah, it's amazing to have the opportunity to have had this experience before and to have put a couple of albums out already, you know? Yeah, does it change the sort of the process of putting a record out? Is it something you want to hold on to or it's something that you're ready to release? No, I'm really ready to release it. Yeah, I don't like. I couldn't have waited another minute. Really, I was so ready for it to come out. Um, especially this one, because by the time it was released, you know, we it, we had been working on it for so long. Yeah. Uh, in the background, um, while doing other things, and it's you're just you just can't wait. You you can't wait to f to feel what it feels like once it's out. 
Like, you know, it's because what happens is once it's out, it's then it becomes another another thing that you've done. It's complete. It's done. Yeah. You've done that now. But before it's out, you, you know, there's still the opportunity that to to change something or before it comes out, somehow it's not complete yet, I feel like. And then now it's out, it's like, oh, you can finally move on to giving your energy to other projects that you're working on. And did it feel different to your other records? Because this one had been uh, in the air for so long. It began in what, in terms of Rick Rubin getting in touch with you about, that's like, what, five years? Yeah, it's a long time ago. So much has happened since then. Um, we weren't working on it constantly for that long, but we were in the process for that long. So he, yeah, he got in touch in, it must have been the end of 2014. And... So Rick Rubin, legendary producer of Beastie Boys. um, Mm. And who else? So (laughs) he, um, his back catalogue includes, you know, Chuck D and Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, as you mentioned, Slayer, ACDC, Kendrick Lamar, Eminem, Jay-Z... He was involved in um, with Russell Simmons in in Def Jam, and like right at the beginning, he was kind of there at the beginning of all these moments that became, you know, mo- cultural moments. Like he was there at the beginning; he was part of it. So he has got this perspective. Also, for me, the most exciting project really was the Johnny Cash recordings that he that he was that he did, that he kind of guided Johnny Cash through these five, six albums yeah. of, the, of the covers, the American recordings. For me, that was the thing that was like, this guy knows what he's doing. And I've, does, does he wear shoes? I've always got an idea that he's just walking around with shoeless. Yeah, he doesn't really wear shoes. The shoes that he does wear are like, they're like slippers, they're like comfortable. Got, they've got a sole, and they're like slip-ons. we we made Let Them Eat Chaos in the middle of trying to make this album because we made all the demos for Let Them Eat Chaos and played them to Rick and he was like this isn't it, this isn't quite right Right. but we were like we love this, we have to do this we want to put this out so this album has been like behind the scenes, even when we were writing Let Them Eat Chaos, this album existed somewhere above our heads, you know this thing for Rick that we were trying to do was that str- could you feel that on your shoulders that there's this other thing, this masterpiece that this guy was, <laughs> that I need to do? I mean, he was definitely Rick. The shadow of Rick was like, not even the shadow, like the the presence of Rick <laughs> was a, was definitely in our in my like sphere. But I just what what an incredible presence to have in your sphere. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I feel I I didn't feel it like a pressure. I felt it like a joy, like, and just, I felt so lucky to have his attention, really. How often would you check in with each other about, we need to get around to this record? We weren't, like, on the phone every weekend or anything like that. It was, like, months would go past, or I'd be on tour, or I'd be working on writing something else, a book, poems, or anything like that. You know, in the time between him getting in touch and this album coming out, there's been... I don't even know how many things have happened. Two books of poetry, like two or three plays, you know, I don't know, so many things. So in all that time, I would check in with Rick each time we went to the States. So that might be three times in five years that we would go to his house and play him the demos he'd been working on. And within that 
framework. I would go to Dan's studio in Streatham and we'd work on this album. We probably did like four or five sessions towards it. So that's like a week or two. And then I'm blurring myself. <laughs> hey, not at all. I find it really interesting with you know, um, a line that was in the recent Q feature we did mm. uh, mentioned that as you were preparing for this album, you did like a road trip. Cause, and I think the line was something like, because you knew this was the most important record of your life and you were getting in the mental headspace for that. And I was thinking like how that just sounds so daunting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that w- rather than it being like the most important record of, of my life, because each of them are extremely important. Everything you do as a creative artist is the most important thing you've ever done, hopefully. That's how it feels, you know, because it's new. It's something that's new that's happening. But... Rather than that, it it felt like it was, for me, a groundbreaking moment because you, as an artist, you get to work with a producer of that calibre, you know, what, that's once in a lifetime for an artist like me, you know. I would never have been able to contact him had he not contacted me. Yeah. So, like... He's not on like my space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not in the yellow pages. Come on, Rick, you're in my top eight. <laughs> but you were out in the, the studio that he's got in Bob Dylan's old tour bus, is that right? But Bob Dylan's old tour bus is in the garden of this studio called Shangri-La, which yeah. used to belong to a guy called Robbie Robertson, who is in the band, which was Bob Dylan's band. Yeah. Um, for anyone who's like, I'm really sorry if that sounded really ignorant for anybody who's listening, being like, right, we'll, Robbie we'll Robertson. We'll edit it so we both sound like geniuses. Yeah, it's amazing. Fine. Thanks, cheers. <laughs> but then, and Rick took on the studio and and did up the old tour bus, which was... Uh, and and made it into a, another writing room or another little studio, and that's um, where we began. That's where we spent. We did our writing. We spent our first week of writing time in that old in Bob Dylan's old tour bus, and then we recorded the album in an, what had been a chapel, and it had burnt down, and they'd just rebuilt it. And it's in the it's in the kind of gardens beneath. Oh, it, there's just this beautiful tree. I mean, I can't even describe it, and it's my job to describe things well. And it's like this, it mystifies me to, to be able to describe it's really that place. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, it's just... Were you able to write out there in such sort of idyllic surroundings? Yeah. Sort of holiday vibes? <laughs> no, because it's different. It it's different? like the sense of occasion that it gives you. It, it, it doesn't feel like um, you're on holiday, really. It just it feels like you're in... I mean, it feels like you're in paradise because... As a musician, as an artist, you dream of recording in a studio like that, you know. But the sense of occasion is so great that you, I feel like I definitely wanted to rise to that challenge. So I was writing tons and um, I found it really, really creative environment, not at all daunting or stifling or anything like that. It just, I just felt so You just adjusted overjoyed. to it, like Jay-Z popping in. Because I know some, I mean, I, when I was a teenager, it was a lot of grunge artists mm. who would rebel against the posturios, you know, like, they'd have to go and like, lie in a skip to write their lyrics and stuff. Yeah, but the <laughs> thing is, like, I've done all that, like, not, I mean, not laid in a skip, but I mean, like, in terms of studios, like, I've recorded in bedrooms where nothing worked, and I mean, it was amazing. I was so happy to be in that room with that broken mic, like, where you had to hold the duvet up against the door so you could get the, like, bit of the sound baffled out and, like... I've done so much of that stuff. And then eventually when I managed to get into Dan Carey's studio, like that was like, I'd never seen anything like that, you know? And that gives me this incredible sense of occasion where I just don't want to waste a second. 
And, um, and where was that? That's in South that's London. That's in Streatham, in, in, yeah, in South London. And um, I mean, for me, it's just, it's not like I've, the thing is, it's not like we went to that, to Shangri-La studio and wrote the whole album there. We went there for a week to write and everything we wrote pretty much, apart from two or three things, didn't make it through the next kind of round of demoing. And then the bulk of the album was written in London. And then we just recorded it there at Rick's place. Are you still always writing? Yeah, I mean, it comes and it goes. Like, I find that in this kind of moment when you're touring and you you have to be very um, front and centre, you know, you you have to do interviews, you've got to talk about the work. I find that in these kind of moments, the switch between this mode and the writing mode can be a bit drastic. And um, I try not to give myself too much, like, pressure if I'm if a week goes past and I haven't written. Because I think that somebody once told me there's no such thing as writer's block. There's just the fear of writing badly. And if you can take that fear off your own shoulders, it doesn't matter if you don't write for a day or two. It doesn't mean you've, you've lost it forever. You know, I used to think of it like a tap and that if I ever turned that tap on and nothing came out, that would be the end of me kind of thing. But actually, that's not really how I feel about it anymore. It's, it's a muscle that you cultivate. It's a skill. It's a set of skills. And inspiration where it comes from you know where creativity begins is still as mysterious to me as it always was but the skills that I've managed to develop they make it they make me feel a bit more secure because I know that yeah when it's time I'm ready but also sometimes it's just don't want to <laughs> What was the point at which you realised you had a sort of love of language? Forever. Always had it. Even when you were really young? Yeah. And when did you start writing? Just forever. Always. It wasn't really like that. It's not like I began. It just always was the case. And um, I was always just so drawn to music and books and just crazy about them. I'm crazy about writing, crazy about words, stories. It's just I, I felt like obsessed. I, I became extremely obsessed, like more and more to the point where um, it was all I could think about every minute of the day and night. Can you remember the first piece you wrote that you were proud of? I remember the first piece that I decided to show to my friends. That's probably, yeah where I decided that it was like this thing that all you lot do uh, I've got I, I've got this I've done you know because I was going to like the ciphers and sitting around with rappers but I was never contributing in that way and then one day yeah I do remember one day had this little this little lyric yeah I remember that yeah <laughs> when did the writing come hand in hand with the rapping well th then really like that's when it's that's how it started like when i was much younger when i was um a, like a child like 6 7 8 9 then it was just stories that i was writing really um like stories about like things that had happened in the day or or just making up stories about people you know but that wasn't like for anybody else that was just what i liked to do right and then when i when i got to about 15 or 16 that's when my private writing that I was doing all the time that's when I I wanted to share it 
I felt like I wanted to share it with people. And that, that was rapping. That was the thing that made me excited about um, sharing my words. Was the, yeah, just, the, just this idea of like, you begin writing a rhyme and you just can't wait to get to the end so you can tell your friends. You know, it's amazing. It was exciting. It's like, uh, I remember the first um, time I rapped in public. It was at this record store in town and it was packed. And I'd been there loads as a punter, like as someone to watch the, the rappers, but I'd never got up myself. And I remember just this feeling that I now, I now, I recognise the feeling. It's the same feeling that I have now each time before I go on stage, but it's like this, like, deep kind of heat goes all through your body. You have this, like, tunnel vision sense of purpose where you're just, like, all you can see is the microphone. You're just, like, you're just, everything else, like, turns down. Everything else in the room disappears in some sense, and it's, like, you know, every, the sound is, like, gets all subby in your ears, like, because the blood's rushing up to you your brain or something, I don't know what's happening. And it's like, you just get this mad feeling of like purpose, commitment, like you just know what you're for. You know, I just felt like I knew what I was for in life. And like when you're at that age, you're a teenager, like that is a powerful feeling for a teenager yeah. because I, up until that point, I didn't know what I was for. I didn't know what, what I was meant to be doing on the planet. And then after that, I just felt like there was nothing else. That's what I mean about the obsession. It just kicked in then really. What was the initial aftershock of that? It was just absolutely incredible. It's just like, wow. I felt like I was made out of fire, you know. Everyone was just like, whoa. Did you tell those reactions <laughs> instantly? People were like, because I looked so funny as well when I was a kid. You know, I looked so young and I was all like wrapped up in loads of layers and like, I'd always have like three hoodies on and a jacket and like, <laughs> it's like... I used, you know, just, Kate visiting from the Arctic. Yeah, just looked like a weird little kid. People used to, and I'd always have my like my book in my pocket, like my paperback, whatever I was reading. And how old? How old are you at this point? Like fifteen, sixteen. But I didn't look like a sixteen-year-old girl. You know, I just I looked like a. I don't know. I was always I was like smoking loads of weed. My eyes were really like far into my head and like. <laughs> Hair was always a mess. I used to wear my hair up all the time. And, like, people would just look at me like, why are you here? Like, what are you doing here? And then I would start rapping and they would be like, whoa, okay, that's why that person is here. Yeah. Also because it was like, you know, are you a girl or a boy? Like, what? Are, like, literally people would be like, what are you? <laughs> like, that was, that was a question I got asked so often at that age. And what did you reply I don't know what to say to that. It was painful, you know. What do you say to that? I don't know. I was like, probably didn't say anything. Just you just weigh it out, and then. But then I found that rapping it gave me this way of like transforming all of that. Like it just would transform the room. It would recalibrate the room, and I found it throughout my life actually. Throughout my. Um, my creative career, I could be in a place, an environment that felt hostile or uncomfortable. When I was getting into telling poems, you'd often have to go to these quite weird places. You know, there's all this like stuff about getting poetry into places that doesn't want poetry. Like you'd have to go to a pub and stand in a pub where everyone just wants to watch the football and yeah. you'd have to go and tell poems. <laughs> like, there was, you know. The quiz nights happening down the other end of the pub. <laughs> 
literally exactly that. And it'd be like, right, well, I'm getting 20 quid for this, so I <laughs> do it. Like, so, but like, I would find that even a really intimidating environment like that, or like the complete opposite end of the spectrum, where you'd go to like a fashion store and do like a poem for their opening of their store or whatever. And everybody would be really intimidating and beautiful and like... Or when I went into a women's jail, you know, and like all of these different things, as soon as you start, as soon as I started to tell my poems or to do my lyrics, this thing would happen where it was like, um, like I say, a recalibration of the room. People become vulnerable, sensitive, like everything changes because you're being so raw and it's like uncomfortable for people to watch somebody you know like go there and then uh, usually what happens is people meet you there and like something changes you know yeah and could you feel yourself adjusting to each and every room i mean how did that make that must be quite a uh powerful is probably the wrong word but it must be quite an amazing feeling to know you can you can leap from the half empty pub that's not paying attention to the prison to the high-end fashion show just is what it is. I think other poets will recognise that, definitely. Like, this is just what we had to do. I had to, like, stand on the South Bank next to a statue and, like, try to tell poems. Like, or, you'd, or you'd stand in a foyer and tell poems. And, like, that, that was basically the, the job when I, was, when I got into doing it. And I only got into doing it because of, like, a few different accidents that led me into it. But it, it's such an incredible education, really, in... Um, yeah, in just in in performance. Yeah, it was it's amazing to have performed in so many different places. I'm Kate. I'm having a lovely chat. Uh, this is Q presents the making of. In your head, were you okay at that point that you um, you'd be able to string up all those divergent paths in terms of a writer, a poet, a musician? Um, I never thought about it. Like I've never ever thought about it like that. Like gone outside of the process and been like. I'm going to string all these divergent paths together. It's like, it's much more intuitive than that. Like, to be completely honest with you, what happened was I was rapping. I started rapping at 15, 16. I did that. And when I got to about 19 or 20, a friend of mine told me about Poetry Slam, where you could win £100 if, you, if I went and did my raps without any music. So I went along and I did it. And I met all these poets. And suddenly I became involved in this poetry scene. And because the scene's relatively small, you can move quite quickly up the ranks. So I was getting lots of bookings like relatively quickly, even though the bookings were, as I say, standing like on the South Bank by a statue, <laughs> or like you know, standing in a statue, foyer. or like a human statue. You know, like a you know, like the you know, like the circular monument on the South Bank. There's like these steps. I don't know. It's just like a statue, and we would just have to stand there and try and tell poems to passers by who yeah. just didn't obviously want to listen to poetry so awful the kind of things that poets had to do like but the no wonder people think poetry is like so annoying <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but I'm, all this to say I was that, trying to look at that statue <laughs> someone but all this to say that eventually after all that this guy saw me telling my poems in different places probably in the foyer of a theatre and then gave me this job of writing a play he worked for a new writing theatre company and he had seen me and he gave me a job writing a play and I had never considered myself skilled enough to be able to write a play. But through that experience, what happened was all these different gateways in my brain, literally I could feel them opening up and ideas were able to flow in new ways because I got to the end of a challenging process. It was extremely challenging. I had to find a whole new like 
toolkit of like facilities to be able to deal with dialogue and, and plot and structure. Before, anything, any idea I had would come out as a rhyme. It'd be a rapt rhyme, you know? Then suddenly it was like, wow, okay, poetry world, I can slow down. And then it was like, oh, hold on, dialogue. And every single time I came up against a challenge and I fought through that challenge, a new pathway for ideas opened up in my brain. And it was that, that was in 2011, the play was called Wasted. It was at that moment that I was like, this is it. This is what I made, like, it changed everything. Because before that, I'd just been trying so hard to be a musician. It just hadn't been working. I'd been busking. I was touring with my band. We got support slot supporting Billy Bragg. And, like, we did some support for Scroobius Pit. But it just it wasn't working. Like, And then I got this job right in this play. And then from that day to this, um, I've just been following the ideas and just not stopping myself from trying, basically, with, with forms that I find challenging. And that's what led me into the place to be able to write brand new ancients which was the long poem yeah and that was huge for me that changed loads of things so all all i'm trying to explain is that it's never knowing it's like a situation where a load of accidental things happen and you are intuitively moving through your creativity and it creates an environment where you you, suddenly this can be your life you know and the band was called sound Sound of rum Rum. Yeah. yeah but i remember reading stuff about you your band at the time and it really felt like other musicians were really responding. Yeah. Like Scroobius cool. Pip you mentioned, you know, yeah, yeah. people were describing you in ways like this is like a real talent. When that ended, did you feel like you'd maybe um you'd missed your chance of music? Not so much. It was just basically I found myself like trying to write this play while um we were kind of in a service station off the motorway, like we we weren't really able to we we couldn't really tour. We couldn't afford to tour. We all had day jobs. Um, so we'd have to drive to wherever it was we were going, do the gig, and then drive all the way back after the gig. And often, you know, going all the way up to the up north, not getting home till like early hours of the morning, then having to go straight into work, you know. It was just crazy. It it wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to turn my back on music. It was just like, I don't think I can cultivate the level of energy I need to, to, to write this play, which was what... I was focusing on in that moment and also be doing this sound of rum thing and also it didn't feel like to me quite the right fit musically it just didn't feel right I loved the lads in the band so much that I felt like that was more I loved them more than the music that we were making do you know what I mean yeah and then so I I just took a break to focus on writing this play and then I and then I wrote Brand New Ancients which was like absolutely landmark moment for me and then I started working with Dan and we made everybody down but at that point, when you'd met Dan Carey, mm. the producer, yeah. had you already won the Ted Hughes Award? for Brand No, Nations? I met Dan like when I was in Sound of Rum. Rob the Bank, who signed us to his um, Sunday Best Record label, which was Scoobius Pip's label as well, he invited Dan to come and watch us play in a pub. I th- I'm pretty sure Dan was the only person in the audience. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was amazing. And he watched us play and we started talking. And like I was like... Like I say, I'd I'd heard about somebody called a music producer, but I'd never like met a real one. Like, yeah. and here he was, and we went down to his studio. You know, he mixed one of our tracks, and we just couldn't believe. You know, it was the mi- size of the mixing desk. Yeah, guitars everywhere. Sprinkling magic dust on it. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> I'd never seen it. You know, so then it took a long time to actually get into the studio with Dan because he was, you know successful professional 
And so how do you get into a studio with a professional music producer? It was like, I didn't know. It was, it was impossible. But eventually what happened was he, uh, man, he had some downtime and I managed to just get down there after his day had finished and we just spent a few hours in one night. We made Lonely Days. So was it an immediate click? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you two obviously are very close collaborators now. You've done three records together. Yeah. Yeah, I love him. It's amazing what we have. I feel completely, like, equally matched for, like, like a, a willingness to venture into impossible ideas. Like, he makes me... He gives me this kind of furious energy to pursue the most ridiculous idea. And um, I... I find it a very supportive and mutual kind of creative relationship. It's beautiful. I feel so grateful for it. You know? How did you feel when you were making that debut album? Did you feel, could you feel it was special yeah. as you were doing it? Yeah, it was like, the thing is, like, you have to understand that nobody else at that time. Um, well, this is a funny thing to say, but nobody else really cared. Like, we couldn't, we couldn't get the album signed. I couldn't get a record deal. I couldn't get a manager, nothing like that. But, but I just knew it was incredible. I just knew it was an exciting thing. I mean, not incredible, like I knew, you know, I knew we were making incredible art or anything like that. It's just High like... High five in every 10 seconds. <laughs> but it was just like, this is... It had a crazy energy to it, you know? It was like... We did, we worked fast, like one or two weeks, I think. We had we had it. And um, I just felt so um, excited. And I just wanted to wrap my like wrap my head off. I just like I'd been doing poetry for ages, been writing plays. I just wanted to like. But what was amazing about it is that all my work that I'd done writing for the theatre obviously influenced that album because it's a narrative-driven album where there's loads of dialogue and it's a story. Yeah. And the way it unfolds when we were writing Happy End, which is the final song. This is an album where there's a story unfolding throughout, and then there's this like kind of cumulative. Is that the word? The final scene. I think if you say it, it's officially a word. <laughs> I don't think You've it got was to a that word. status. There was the final scene where, like, everything, like, all of the little strands meet and everything explodes, basically. Not physically, but um, for the characters. And it was so much fun to write. I remember my pen was just, like, leaping off the page and, like, Every time I'd finish a bar, I'd say it to Dan, and he'd be like, "Oh my god, like, oh my god, oh my god!" It was amazing because also we were discovering what was happening. Because I'd be writing it down, I'd be like, "Dan, like Leon's around the back with the car, and he's coming to get Harry." And like, you know, it's so like, it happens like that. So it's not like you were intricately plotting it out at home. You were sort of doing it in the in that in the moment for that one. Yeah, that's what was going on. It was like I was it was like I was discovering it. It was like I was reading it before before I'd written it. It was crazy. It would be like. You know, there's all this stuff about Becky's uncles. <laughs> it's, so, it's so convoluted, especially if someone hasn't heard the album. But you've built up all these characters. And, like, I I knew what was meant to happen. I knew that they were all meant to come together um, in this in this surprise party for one of the characters in this pub. And I knew that, like, it was all going to be the moment where it all kicked off. It's like EastEnders or something. That's, <laughs> you know what I mean? In the pub, like... It was kind of, it's tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to be kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to be a kind of send-up as well of like, the, you know. And um, I was just there writing it and suddenly it was like, yeah, it was like I was watching it. It's like, oh, wow. You're discovering, I was discovering it in the moment, you know. 
when you're in that sort of artistic process, do you f- are you the sort of person who's like, I'm just going to make this big. I mean, the second record, mm. Let Them Eat Chaos, you, if that sounds complex, that record is a book and a record, very sort of intricate concept. Mm. Do you ever get in the moment and think, oh, this is too overwhelming? Well, I think, actually, I think we got simpler. So everybody down was like, it spanned a year. That's like the time frame of that 45-minute record. So funny as well, because we made this we made this album, it's a story, but when we had to cut the vinyl, we couldn't fit all the songs on the vinyl and we couldn't afford to make it a double vinyl. So we just, the vinyl has got two less songs on it than the, than the album. Right. So it's like, <laughs> Rips off your fans. <laughs> like, I did, I've never even said that in an interview, but it was just part of the stuff that when I didn't have a manager, I didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, well, we'll just we'll lose the two songs that come. There's these songs that come out of the narrative that are kind of comments on the narrative. So we just ripped a couple of those off. Anyway, my point is, is that that album, it spanned a year. It had like, I mean, it's got a cast of like 10 characters that you're meant to keep up with. And loads of stuff happens. Whereas... Let Them Eat Chaos is one minute in time. There's seven characters and it's much more like clear and easy to follow, I think. Um, and then Tra- Book of Traps and Lessons essentially is just one character and is and it could even be understood as just being one moment in the mind of this character, you know. Got our heads down and our hackles up, our backs against the wall. I can feel your heart racing. None of this was written in stone. The current's fast, but the river moves slow, and I can feel things changing. Even when I'm weak and I'm breaking, I stand weeping at the train station, cause I can see your faces. There is so much peace to be found in people's faces we definitely wanted the time frame to move horizontally through let the meet chaos we wanted it to be 418 418 for you know yeah. for each of them and then we wanted this thing to like i wanted this thing to bring all of these characters in their rooms out of their rooms and into the street i didn't know what it was going to be and then i realized it was the storm and yeah in terms of someone who's always writing about other people other people's lives mm. Have you noticed people around you changing or mentioning things to you in the hope that it might spark <laughs> some sort of right about me, Kate? Uh, no, I mean, like somebody that might say something like that is not necessarily someone that I'm like close with, you know. Like, there's, a, I have a very clear, I have a very clear boundary when it comes to like friendships that I cultivate and have it's people that I've known for a long time and actually if whenever it transpires that within that friendship I'm Kate Tempest it's just it's cringy it's awkward like none of them like it it's like they're like no you're Kate you're my mate why is this person being so weird to you like you know it's like it's not really like that obviously there have been moments where I've like willingly said, like come and see this play. It's you know it's us, it's our life. Like come and see it, and they've come, and it's been amazing because it's a reflection of something that has been shared by a group of people, and it's there. So on they the stage. can recognise it. Yeah, and that's like beautiful. Hopefully, it doesn't feel intrusive. There have been times when I've been like, oh, I wonder how that feels for that person. But 
Generally speaking, no. Do you regret writing about anything where you've been too open? No, I no, try not to. I mean, there's definitely one or two poems. I mean, there's one poem in particular where I just think, oh, if I ever think of it, it makes me go like, oh, why did I put that in a poetry book? But at the time, <laughs> I did, I thought it was important. At the time, I thought it was important. So it's like having a, you know, it's like a tattoo or whatever. You get, you have to just, even if you hate it now, you have to be like, well, at that time, that meant something to me. So that's a testament to the person I was then. Yeah. Yeah. But also you have to just, you have, by the time something is published or it comes out, you've done so much like drafting and redrafting, you're kind of ready for it to be seen. When I mentioned earlier, you've turned to so many different forms and mastered them. What are you rubbish at? Thanks. <laughs> oh, I'm rubbish at everything else. Absolutely everything else. There's only one thing I can do, and it's just saying a lot of words in sequence. That's it. And you managed to make it your thing. <laughs> That's it. That's all I can do. Like, I can do words. Can't do anything else. But luckily, I've got myself into a position where I don't need to do anything else. So it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> what do you want to do that you haven't got around to yet? Is there something that, um, in the same way the Rick Rubin album was sort of on the back burner, you, you mm. knew it was coming at some point. Is there anything else you're like, I want to do that? I really, really hope that I've got another novel in me. I've tried. I'm working on this thing, but it's been very difficult. It's been the most difficult process I've ever had is this thing that I'm working on at the minute. And it's like, I, it's, I've actually canned it. It's like all that work. So I have this relationship with this novel that I'm trying to be patient with. I know that I'm not ready yet. I'm hoping, I'm really, really hoping that I've got another novel in me. But apart from that, then I've got this play that's coming out next year, and that's really exciting, working on that. That's a translation, or, or a new version of a very old play. That's like the biggest thing I've ever done in theatre, so that's amazing. And then, yeah, like, just to continue, my, my deepest hope is to be able to continue to feel inspired and make work. Yeah, so we're writing for a new record now and it's feeling really good. And that's it. So you've got another new record on the go already? Yeah, I think it's... Um, Do you ever put your feet up? Yeah, yeah, I'm really good at that, actually. I should have <laughs> <I> said. <laughs> I'm really good at doing nothing. Um, I find it useful to have started the next project before the finished project comes out. So, and the reason that's useful is that no matter how well or how terribly the project goes that is about to be released, it won't have an impact on the genesis of the next project, which is the most like vulnerable place. So you're you know? not coming out of success or failure. Exactly. Because you do hear that about how much it's... how much that affects the creative process if someone's just had a smash or something. I mean, it's kind of different for me because we're, I'm, in a, I'm not like... I don't really have... I'm not, do you know what I mean? I don't have, like, smash hits. But, like, even, like, everything's relative, you know, something could be successful in for me, and that could, or or it could go terribly, and that could obviously have an impact on, on the genesis of a new idea. So I always try and make sure that I'm beginning to write the next idea, so, I'm just, so I know that it's unconnected. You know what I mean? Hey, we're almost done. Great. The thing we're going to do now uh -huh. is from smash hits... Oh, amazing. Do you remember That's the biscuit amazing. tin? That's amazing that I just said smash it. It is. You've set me up perfectly. Um, do you remember what? smash it? used to have a biscuit tin. Right. Where you put your hand in, you pull out a silly question. Okay. So this is our 
smash hit style biscuit tin, which you'll see is actually a. <laughs> <laughs> it looks they, like it's really seen better days. That envelope. <laughs> they had a, they had a bigger budget back in the day. This is this is Music Magazine's 2019. It's a jiffy oh, envelope. It's a sad, okay. sad state of affairs. We'll do a few of these. What have I got to do? Pick Just a pick, pick a question. One question out. Do you have any allergies? Do you? Uh, no. I don't like custard. That's not an allergy. I don't think you're allowed to say that if you don't like it. It's. Uh... I don't have any allergies. Um, do I answer it as well? Yeah. It's for you. It's for me. <laughs> it's just weird if you... Are, I thought it was for you. No, you're just asking yourself. No one wants to hear what I... What... I, I would like to hear. Um, okay. But um, I don't have any allergies, no. I don't have any allergies. There you go. Good for us. Plenty of time, though. I think you can develop hay fever later in life. Uh, it's happened to people I know. Um, what's the strangest gift you've ever received? I'm asking you, but do um, I have to ask myself? You answer it first, and I'll, I'll oh, think, and about, think it. about it. See, it's hard, isn't it, answering questions? Well, I'm just—I'm <laughs> poised to ask. Okay, <laughs> I'm dyed in the wool music journalist here. <laughs> the strangest gift I've ever received. Oh, I do get given some quite strange things. Um, I do get given some quite strange things actually, but um, none of which I can remember right now. But I mean, I know there's. Brilliant story in there that I could regale you with, and it would be so funny. And but I just can't remember. I like what, what's the strangest gift you've I can't ever think. Seen? Yeah, it's a tough one. Maybe yeah. Let's no, do another no one. one. Gets many gifts. Uh, are you a good dancer? I'm fantastic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Great. You don't seem surprised by that. No, I mean I could, it's the rhythm in which you say it. But I was I was moved by. Uh, I'm like. My girlfriend is a dancer and she's an amazing dancer. And when I dance with her, I feel like I'm a good dancer because she's so good at dancing. But as soon as I'm dancing not with her, I feel like I'm not a very good dancer. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. When I'm like, when I, obviously like I love, actually, I love raving. I love going out and like having a good dance. And when I'm in it, when I'm in the spirit, I'm like, I'm in it. But I'm not one of those, obviously, I'm not one of those people. You know, when you see someone dancing, you're just like, oh, wow, like they're they're helping me hear the music because of how they're hearing, you know, you can see them feeling it in different different rhythms and stuff. Um, but no, I'm not a great dancer, but I dance with a great dancer. So there we go. Let's do two more. Oh my God, it's so exciting. If you could give one bit of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Mine would be my motto that I've invented over the past few months yeah. where it's um, if I'm not going to talk about it when I'm 80, it's not worth getting stressed about. Oh, wow. But then the, the flaw in that motto, how do you know what you're going to talk about when you're 80? Because I just think if it's so small print that you're getting wound up by it, yeah. you're not going to remember this moment in a few years. It's not going to be one of those. Do you remember when we did that, mate? You know? But my, my grandfather, my granddad, he used to talk about things that were quite small print. Well, I don't think me and him would have got on. <laughs> well, his... <laughs> so are you saying that me, me and him know. are like arch enemies? No, no, what I'm saying is you don't know what you're going to remember. No, wait, I, I shouldn't, listen, I shouldn't listen, be defeating your motto. This is my motto you're messing with here, all right? 
It's only been freshly stamped. I only came up with it a couple of months ago. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm arguing with it. It's a really good motto. It's a really good motto. I, and I agree with it. I was just, in my head, I was just thinking, yeah, but what, what, okay, so more my question is, how do you know, how do you know what's, like, what's kind of, so then how do you know, how do you know what's important and what's not important? If you're like, oh, I'm not going to worry about things that I'm not going to talk about when I'm 80. But is there like, how do you know? Because it's like the transitory stuff that's like, this actually doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, I'll move on. Finally. <laughs> making me nervous. <laughs> I'm just like, it's just nice to ask Did you ever think I'd be in a school teacher? <laughs> um, no, so I mean... <laughs> you answer the question, Miss Tempest. <laughs> the advice that I would give to my 18-year-old self. Oh, no. The advice I would give is... Um, I feel really bad now. Like, I feel like I've cussed your advice, but I didn't... I wasn't meaning to. I just was right. being pedantic. Um, the advice that I'd give to my 18-year-old self... I got some advice recently off a friend of mine who's a theatre director, and um, it's been like the, it's been like a beacon of, like, inspirational wisdom that I repeat to myself all the time, especially when I've got stage fright or I'm nervous or I don't know what I'm doing or I start to doubt myself, all these things. He just said to me, he says, shock them into focus with clarity of intent. Yeah, you, you, you're saying it, you know it's better than my one. <laughs> you did, you had such a look on your face like, my answer is so much better than yours. <laughs> you even did a little nod at the end. Oh, I killed your answer. <laughs> but I do, that is advice that I think is, uh, I think it's really good advice. Yeah. Okay, last one. One more, one more. The, this last one question is, to whom would you most like to apologise? And it's to you for cussing your uh, <laughs> advice to your 18-year-old self. Thank you, Kate. I'm sorry. Yeah, I forgive you. To whom would you most like to apologise? Um... Let me think. Must be someone in school that you just mm. be a dick to. Yeah, probably a few people in school. They're just because mm. I used to be yeah, quite mouthy and mm. just let it escalate really quickly. Just my sort of my big Irish potato head. Mm. So probably, yeah, sorry for being a dick in school. Sorry for laughing when Richard fainted in assembly during the STD talk. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Richard. <laughs> you obviously got very stressed and I shouldn't have laughed at you so oh. that's it okay sorry Richard <laughs> so I think oh. this is, this is. Oh, but the thing is like I feel like what people always say to me that um, the things that you feel shame about from when you were a kid or like the cringy things people always say to me yeah but the other person is so busy thinking about the things that they feel shame yeah. about that they're not even they don't even remember they're what like what yeah but it doesn't I who still... are you <laughs> <laughs> I've come all this way to apologise. No, you live. No, you live in Canada now. <laughs> but um, Kate, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. That was that was the most fun one I've had all day. Oh, good. all day. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Well, uh, no, we're not going to. I'm not going to stay here and let you shower me with this praise. <laughs> anymore uh, thank you to you the listener for listening <laughs> um, don't forget to rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify Google Play or wherever you get your podcast fix um, this has been Q Presents The Making Of with Kate Tempest thank you <laughs> thanks for coming in Kate thank you you ready
This is Kate Tempest on Cube Presents The Making Of. As simple as that, no? <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. Uh, this is Cube Presents The Making Of. Um, I'm Kate. I'm having a, a lovely chat. Um, I, I, I'm stumped. <laughs> okay, so just think about the words Q presents the making of, uh -huh. you're listening to, you have to Oh, listen right, yeah, to. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, yeah, sorry, sorry. Like yeah. You're listening to Q presents the making of. I'm Kate Tempest. I'd, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've dropped the ball. It's fine. I'll never pick it up again. Got, it's over. I've got, I've got, unless, unless you <laughs> Oh no, that was pressure. That was something, yeah. We're done. That was that was good timing. You have been listening to Q presents the making of.